Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 22. I was recently reading and thinking about uh, history, and as late as the 15th, 16th century, Christians were being burned at the stake for wanting to read the Bible in English. And it's just amazing to me that we have such a privilege to read God's Word in our own language. Let's read together. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies." And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Booz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. 
Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tehash, and Mecca. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, that song so adequately describes the feeling in my heart for the last few days. How wide and how deep, how great is the love of the Lord, not only for me, but for us all. For all who have believed, for all who will believe. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the depth, the riches, the glory of what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's truly breathtaking, Father. It is truly holy. And today we ascend to a mountain with Abraham that is no doubt one of the holiest mountains in history and one of the holiest moments in history. Father, you know I've been struggling the last day or two because I know that I'm not capable to say what I have seen. There aren't words to describe, Father. And so I rest in the the limitations of language and the limitations of preachers like me. And I ask you, Father, by the Holy Spirit, to open up our eyes to show what you've done here in Genesis 22. It's truly breathtaking, Father. So I trust in you. And I give you my thanks because I know that you will produce much fruit from the honoring of your word. And we, with all of our hearts, we hope to do that now. In the mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He created moons and suns and stars. He created the land and the sea. He created all the vegetation on the earth. He created fruit trees all according to their kinds. He created the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field and the creeping things, the crawling things, all according to their kinds. And finally, as the pinnacle of His creation, He created human beings in His own image. In His likeness, He created Him. Male and female, He created them and He blessed them. And having created all things, He stepped back and He looked at everything that He had done. And the Bible says that He looked and said, Behold, it is very, very good. And with that, He rested on the seventh day. Now we know that that means that the the rest of God did not mean that He was tired. That He needed a break from work like you and I do. But what it means is that God stepped back and entered into the fullness of joy of what He had done because the creation of God is a, a mirror image of the being of God. And having imaged Himself in creation so well, He stepped back and said, it is good, and entered into the joy of what He had done and entered into the joy of who He is. God was enjoying Himself when He enjoyed creation. And although he did think sincerely that the the totality of his creation was very good, he had a special place in his heart for humankind. He created us to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue, to take control of this earth and to have dominion over it. In other words, he created us to create and to rule and in this way to image his being in a way that nothing else in creation does even to this day. Not even the angels of heaven image God in this way. Humankind alone was designed to enter into deep personal relationships, mainly in the context of marriage. There are many other kinds of relationships too. But as I told you months ago when we dealt with the first parts of Genesis, I really believe that God had a special plan for the bonds of marriage to image His being. And that that special plan was this, that out of the overflow of a love, a total love, 
spiritual, mental, emotional, physical, that out of the love between human beings would overflow other beings. And out of the overflow of that love would come the rule of of the rest of creation. Even as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit loved one another so much that they overflowed in creation, so God created, especially man and woman, to enter into the bonds of marriage and to mirror Him, to image Him by overflowing and creating other beings and ruling. Indeed, God Almighty had a very special place in His heart for humankind. His plan was beautiful. It was very good. And so he created a garden of delights. That's what the, the, the word garden of Eden means. It means garden of delights in the Hebrew. And he built that garden of delights right on top of a treasure trove of fine metals like gold and like onyx. And he placed his prized possessions in that garden. Sadly, instead of submitting themselves to his plan, the first woman and the first man fell prey to the temptations of the devil, and they did the one thing that God had told them not to do. You remember, God invited them to indulge themselves in everything that he had created. He said, listen, I have created all kinds of things in this garden for the delight of your eyes and the pleasure of your souls. Indulge yourselves in it all except for this one thing. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you know as well as I did that that's exactly what they did. In their brokenness, they did the one thing that God had commanded them not to do. And in doing that, they set off a sort of nuclear bomb in the soul of humanity that would affect the rest of us forever. It would cause their offspring to be born in sin. It would cause their offspring to be born in rebellion because they too, like Adam and Eve, would now know good and evil. God was very merciful to them in the garden, and He did sacrifice an animal. You'll remember that He he took the, the skins of an animal and covered the shame of these people. And I believe that the physical covering was a symbol of His covering their sin. It's a symbol of the mercy of God. And to me, more powerfully, God prophesied about Jesus Christ right there in the garden. Right when the first sin happened, God was already pointing to His ultimate solution to sin in His Son. And what I'm talking about is when He said, yes, the serpent will bruise your heel, but He will crush your head. Your offspring will crush His head. And by offspring, He was certainly, undoubtedly referring to Jesus Christ. So beloved, right there in the garden, and Dave, like you pointed out in communion a couple weeks ago, God was pursuing them. That question, where are you? is a question that came out of the heart of a pursuing God, a saving God, a merciful God. So right from the very beginning, God was designing to overflow in mercy toward those who had just sinned against Him and were in rebellion against Him. This is His heart, beloved, and it's always been His heart. However, because of the depth and depravity of of, of the sin of Adam and Eve, their sin did get passed on to the next generation. And you'll remember, one of their sons killed the other. And in the generations that followed, the earth absolutely filled with violence and wickedness. The Bible's so serious about this that it says in Genesis 6-5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now that is That is very strong language. As I was praying downstairs this morning, getting myself ready for the service, really hit me that in saying this, God was going to the root of the problem. God was not just seeing the superficial actions of human beings and condemning them, but He was seeing that all those actions were the overflow of human hearts that were bent towards rebellion. 
And not just the thoughts, but every intent of the thought, every, every intent of every thought of every heart was just bent toward evil and it grieved God very, very deeply. This was the effect of sin. I'll bet, just because I'm a sinner and I know what it's like to sin, I know what it's like to justify and minimize my sin, to think it's not that big of a deal, I will bet that in the garden, Adam and Eve didn't think what they did was really that big of a deal. In fact, I'm sure they didn't, because just look at their reaction. They didn't react like they had just done something devastating. But no matter what they perceived, they had just done something devastating. They really did like explode a nuclear bomb in the soul of humanity. And now you're seeing it in Genesis 6-5. Wickedness is filling not only earth, the earth, but the, but the human heart. And that's m- much more the significant thing. And so this fact grieved God deeply to His heart and He made a decision that in, in my mind is just unthinkable. I would not want to have to be in His shoes. Namely, He decided to to send a flood upon the earth and essentially wipe out every living thing on the earth, with very few exceptions, and to start over again. In His mercy, He spared Noah and Noah's family because He saw something of righteousness in Noah. But you'll remember that after the flood, in a sense, uh, cleansing the, the earth of sinners did not work. You remember that almost from the time Noah and his children came off the boat, they entered right into sin. They found themselves right in the difficulty of deep problems. So much so that Noah had to curse one of his sons. So the flood cleansed the earth of sinners, but it could not cleanse the human heart of sin. And so a a greater solution to the problem of sin in the human heart would have to be found. A, A flood didn't work. Rebooting the system didn't work. Starting over, reloading the planet was not going to work. Now I put things in this way because that's how they transpired over time. But I do want to be clear that I believe that God knew that the flood would not work to cleanse the human heart of sin. It's not as though God was sitting up there thinking about the problem of sin and wondering, geez, what could I do? What can I do? Maybe, maybe I'll try this and hopefully it will work. And maybe it will work, maybe it won't. It's not as though God was like that. God knew from before the foundation of the world that cleansing the earth of sinners in this way would not work. And He planned from before the foundation of the world to provide salvation in a better way. But I believe God did what He did in the flood to demonstrate His mercy and His justice and to remove the grumbling accusations out of the heart and mouth of every human being. Later in eternity, people might look to God and say, you didn't have to do things this way. You could have tried this, you could have tried this, you could have tried that to solve the problem of sin. Some other time I'll I'll lay out for you how I think the many different ways God tried to solve the problem of sin. And, and, And none of them worked except the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's not as though God thought they might work. It's as though God was doing those things to shout to all heaven and earth, I tried everything. And the very last thing for me to do would be something that would be beyond your imagination that would, again, uh, display my being and the humility of my being in a way that will take your breath away forever and ever and ever. In the days immediately following the flood, God prophesied through Noah that He would bless one of Noah's sons, Shem in particular. And He said that through Shem, uh, He would bring His blessing to the nations. And so nine generations later, A man was born and his name was Abram. Why God chose Abram out of all the people that were born, and in fact all the people that came out of the light of Shem, we'll never know. That was God's sovereign choice and the the Bible doesn't give us particulars. And so we just have to rest ourselves in the fact that God knows. But the reason why God called Abram, He's made clear to us all. 
And that reason was to bring salvation to all the nations of the world through this one man, and, and specifically through his offspring. Now, I've told you before that in the Hebrew language, that word offspring can be written in the singular, and it can be written in the plural. You can say offspring or offsprings. And it's clearly written in the singular, so that he's, when God says, I will bless the nations through your offspring, he's thinking about one particular person that would come out of the line of Abram and Sarai. You'll remember from Genesis 12 that Abram was 75 years old when he first heard that promise from God. And I believe that when he heard the promise, he had this assumption that God would bring that promise about in a, in a fairly quick order. I think I would have that assumption, wouldn't you? If God literally showed up and spoke to you visibly and physically and made a powerful promise to you, wouldn't you kind of assume that in the coming days, months, maybe a year or two years, that God would fulfill His promise? And I think that Abraham... Uh, at this time, Abram very much thought that. And so he and Sarai tried and tried and tried, I'm sure, to get pregnant. But one year went by, and then two years went by, and five years, and then ten years, and fifteen years, and twenty years went by, and still no child. As the years went by, the Lord kept reiterating the promise. You'll remember, five or six times, God visibly showed up, physically, uh, audibly showed up and reiterated promises to Abraham that he would in fact do what he had promised Abraham he would do. In fact, he changed Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, and he changed Sarai's name to Sarah, which means princess. And I think what God was doing was embodying his promises in their very names. So that every time they spoke each other's names, they would remember the promises of God. God really meant business. He made a promise to Abraham and he meant it. And and beloved, he did everything he could to instill a faith in Abraham that he would come through and when the time was full, fulfill his promises. After 24 years had gone by, however... You'll remember that Abraham and Sarah had just come to the place where they were, they were in the depth of despair that only those who have waited a long, long time on the promises of God can understand. They were now 99 years old and 89 years old, and they just were in a place where they could hardly believe anymore that God could do or would do the things that He had promised to do. And right at that precise moment, when I think they were probably at the, the blackest time of their life, God Almighty showed up in mercy and He promised them one more time and He would bring them a child. But this time He made a more specific promise that He said it will be within a year. One year from now, I will return to you and you will have this child in your hands. You remember that they laughed. They laughed in derision, in scorn, in bitterness, in pain, in anger, in unbelief. But the Lord did as He promised. And when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 years old, no one would believe it, but they actually had a child. And by the command of God, you remember what they named their child. They named him He Laughs. What a powerful name. Just a year before, they had laughed at God in unbelief, and now God turned all of that pain to joy. And you'll remember from last week that Sarah exclaimed, God has made laughter for me. Out of all these years, out of all these difficulties, all these trials, all this wondering, all this searching, all this stretching, all the doubting, all the pain, all the waiting, God has used all of that to create a great laughter for me. And then she said, whoever hears of this story will enter into that laughter with me. They will enter into the joy of what God has done. As I think about what it was like to raise Isaac over the next few years, I just imagine the joy that was in them when they called out to him over and over again and called his name. He laughs. He laughs. He laughs. 
what a glory it was to watch that boy turn into a man. Some years later, God appeared to Abraham again, Genesis 22. But this time, God commanded Abraham to do something that was frankly unthinkable. Just absolutely unthinkable. As I've meditated on this passage actually for years, I remember first being shocked by this text when I first came to Christ in 1986, and then when I was learning Hebrew in 1995, this was the first chapter that I was actually able to read completely in Hebrew without any English helps. So I have a long history with Genesis 22. I've been thinking about it a long time. And I just remember the sense of, of, of shock in my soul. And this week as I thought about it, I, I thought there's no command ever issued to a human being that was harder than this command except the one given to Jesus Christ. To take up his cross and to die to himself and to walk knowingly straight into a gruesome death, knowing exactly what he was about to do. This was a very, very difficult command. And you'll see there in Genesis 22.1 that in giving this command, the Bible says that God was testing Abraham. And I want to just take a minute to talk about that word testing so we're clear about what God was up to here. The Hebrew word for tested that's behind our word in verse 1, it means to prove the quality of someone or something, often through adversity or hardship. It's to prove the quality of something, often through adversity or hardship. So, Dave, I'm picking on you a lot in my sermon today, but I was thinking about you this week because I thought if, you ha- if your job was to make motors, which happens to be Dave's job, they make a lot of motors. If your job was to make motors and you had spent years and years, decades in fact, creating a motor that could do things that no one else could imagine it could do and you tested it, you did all kinds of things and you knew this thing would work. You knew it would work. You knew it could do stuff that would blow people's minds. Now you brought it out into the public and you put it under a test, not to see if it would work, but to display to the world that it would work. You already know the qualities of the motor. Now you test it to display what you already know is there, not what you hope is there. This is the nature of the heart of God toward Abraham when he tested Abraham. It's not as though God didn't know Abraham's heart. God was putting on display the faith that he had created in Abraham's heart for so many years. God had handcrafted so many trials for Abraham to get him ready for this moment, and God knew he was ready. Beloved, please just spend time meditating on this. God called Abraham to do the hardest thing you can imagine anyone would have to do. And he knew that Abraham would react well. He knew that he was ready. And so, yes, he tested him, but in such a way as to put his work on display. God was about to use Abraham's life to display to the Jews first and then to the rest of the world what he himself was going to do with his own son in 2,000 years off in the future. And in order to play his part well, Abraham would need an amazing faith. And that's what most of his trials were all about, beloved. You think about the trials of Abraham. They were hand-designed by God to prepare him for this moment. Somewhere between 15 and 25 years have passed by from the end of chapter 21 to the beginning of chapter 22. We're not sure exactly how much time because this is one place in Abraham's story where the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how old Abraham or Isaac were. But we can tell from clues in the text that, that Isaac was not a little kid. He carried a very heavy burden of wood. He had a sort of an adult level conversation with his dad. The Hebrew word that's used here refers to a, 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 a person that could be somewhere between 5 and 30. Anybody who's uh, not married. 
But when you look at the other clues, it's pretty clear to all the best scholars that I read this week that, that he was somewhere in his late teens or early 20s. So as you're thinking about this story, envision Isaac as, as a young man, not as a boy. He's a young man. And envision Abraham being somewhere in the range of 115 to 125 years old, just remembering that they lived longer in those days than we live now. So in our sight, Abraham probably would have looked in his 60s or 70s. Still strong, still vigorous, but getting up there in age. Isaac was unspeakably precious to Abraham and Sarah. Any son would be. I'm a father of an only child, and I know how precious Rachel is to me. God knows how, in the depth of my heart, how precious this child is to me. But Isaac was really in a league all of his own. There was a preciousness about him that I'm not sure any of us can fully understand. This one child was the child of promise through whom God promised to bless all the nations of the world. And that is a huge thing. You remember Abraham looking at the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore and God saying, if you can count all these, you can count the descendants that will be yours and they're going to come through a son. A son. So to Abraham, this son was incredibly important. He was the child of promise. He was the child that came about by a miracle birth. I mean, do you know anybody who's had a child at 190 years old, respectively? This was a miracle birth. This was the child they had waited for for 25 years, beloved. And I do believe there was a value in their heart toward Isaac that is just very difficult for us to conceive. This is why God used this language there in verses 1 and 2. He says, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son whom you love. Take note of that language. I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son whom you love. Doesn't that bring other language to mind from later in the Bible? When Jesus Christ was born and baptized, remember He came to the Jordan River and He submitted Himself to baptism. Even John the Baptist was arguing with Him, saying this is wrong. You're holier than I am. I should be, you should be baptizing me, not me, you. And Jesus said, let's just do this to fulfill all righteousness. Submit to this. And as He was baptized and came up out of the water, you'll remember that one thing that happened is that God Almighty Himself audibly spoke so that people could hear it. And what were His words? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In Matthew 17, verse uh, 19, I think it is. Verse 5, actually. When Jesus went up on the mountain and He was transfigured before His disciples, Peter, James, and John, the Bible says His face literally shone like as bright as the sun. And His, and his clothes turned a kind of white that is impossible to describe. He was transfigured before these people in their very sight. They saw it and they heard the voice. Peter later testified in Second Peter chapter 1. They audibly heard the voice of Almighty God speaking from heaven and saying, This is my beloved Son, the Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. One of the reasons, beloved, that God put Abraham and Sarah through so much with regard to Isaac was to exalt the value of Isaac. I hope you can look back over Abraham's life and see that God had a design for his life. And in order for that design to come about, he had to make them go through tremendously painful things. Like waiting a hundred years to have their first child. In order to exalt the value of their child. And why would he do that? Because Isaac is a figure of Christ who was to come. 
And if you and I can get some idea of how valuable Isaac was to Abraham and Sarah, we get the smallest little glimpse of how valuable Jesus Christ is to God the Father, God Almighty. When He looks at the only begotten Son, oh, you cannot imagine the sense of value that fills up His heart. Oh, He thinks much of the Son. He has invested all deity in the Son. He's held nothing back from His beloved Son. Jesus Christ is imminently valuable. And the main meaning of Isaac's life is to help us point toward that value. God used the trials of Abraham. He really used the trials of Abraham. Abraham didn't know any of this though. One thing that that just baffles me about God's work with people is He will often put you through things and not explain to you what He's doing. And He never fully explained to Abraham what all this situation was about or what His Son was about. He did not. But after 115 to 125 years of training, beloved, hope that's landing on you, 115 plus years of training and walking by faith, Abraham had come to the place in his life where when God commanded, he stopped questioning and he just did what God commanded him to do. We have seen that in other places, Abraham questioned God. He even laughed at the Almighty. I believe that if he had questioned this command of God, Moses would have written about it because he wrote about so many other questions Abraham had. But now Abraham's an old man. He's been well tested, well tried, well prepared. God gives him an impossible command. And he says, okay, no objections, no hesitation. Early the next morning, he saddles his donkey. He chooses two servants to go along with him. He gathers the wood. He gathers the flint for the fire. He takes his only son, his beloved son, and he heads out to the land of Moriah. It's another interesting thing. God told him again, I want you to go to this land called Moriah and I'll tell you the exact place when you get there. Again, Abraham had to just go out by faith, trusting in God. And so they headed out that way. Now the land of Moriah, we don't know where that's at, but we know where Abraham started. He started a little south and and west of Jerusalem in a place between a place called Gerar and and Beersheba. And when you take out, we know that this was a three-day journey. So when you look at how far a person could get in three days on foot in those days, what you see is that the most likely site for this whole scene is actually Jerusalem. The best scholars that I read this week speculate that it was in fact Jerusalem. We don't know that for sure, but how powerful a thought it would be that God would prefigure the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in the life of Isaac in the very spot where the crucifixion actually happened. I wish that I could press this. I wish I could have confidence that it actually happened in Jerusalem, but in my heart, I think it probably did. It may have even happened on the very hill where Christ Himself was crucified. But wherever the place was, one thing we know for sure was it took Abraham three days' journey on foot to get there. Now put yourself in his shoes. What would that have been like? He's the only one that knows what's about to happen. His servants don't know what's actually going on. His son doesn't know what's actually going on. He's the only one that has a sense of what's about to happen. And he's got three days on foot to think about it. He's thinking about his life, all the trials he's been through, all the difficulties he's been through. He's thinking about the miracle birth of his son Isaac. He's thinking about how his laughter turned from unbelief into unbelievable joy. 
He's thinking in great detail about everything. I'm sure of it. I can't imagine how deep the meditation of Abraham was on those three days. I can't imagine it. But I'm sure that God was working mightily in him and stirring in him as he was meditating. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. And somehow or other, God identified the spot to him. God said, that's the place. And so Abraham left his two servants behind and he traveled on only with his son. He laid the wood on Isaac's back. What a powerful thing. He took the instrument of death in his hand, the knife and the flint for the burnt offering, and they began to ascend the mountain. And as they walked along the way, his son asked him, Father, I see the wood. I see the fire. In other words, the flint. But I don't see the lamb for burnt offering. Where's the lamb, Father? And at this moment, I think that God Almighty put words in Abraham's mouth that were more powerful and prophetic than he himself probably ever knew. And here's what he said. God will provide for Himself the Lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide for Himself a Lamb for the burnt offering, my son. I believe Abraham was probably just trying to deflect the conversation with Isaac. Who of us would want to actually tell our son what we were just about to do to our son? Who could do that? Who could do that? I think Abraham was probably deflecting, although judging from Hebrews, he may have been hoping that God was still going to make a way out. But no matter what Abraham was thinking, I believe God Almighty put those words in his mouth to sort of doubly, to sort of doubly prophesy, if you will, one, about the Lamb that would be found up on that mountain, but two, about the Lamb of God that was slain from before the foundations of the world. Abraham's words were pointing to Jesus Christ. And the day when God would provide a lamb for Himself for the burnt offering. Like Abraham, one day God would put the wood of the sacrifice upon the shoulders of His Son and require Him to carry it up a hill. One day God would take the instruments of death in His own hands and strike His Son for the salvation of the sins of the world. Beloved, there's this big debate about who killed Jesus. Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Was it the sins of us all? And to some extent, yes, to all of those things. But that's not the primary answer. The primary answer is that God the Father struck His own Son. God the Father killed His own Son for the sake of our sins. Look with me, if you will, at uh, Isaiah 53, uh, verses 10 through 12. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And in the Hebrew, that word Lord there is Yahweh. It's the divine revealed name of God. This is God the Father. It was not the will of the Jews or the Romans or of all sinners. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. There's that word again. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Beloved, Abraham's words to Isaac were in fact 
the words of God to the world through which He both prophesied and promised the coming Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Everything Abraham did was prefiguring what God the Father was going to do to His own beloved Son. In great detail, actually. It is astonishing how close the detail is between the crucifixion and this scene in Genesis 22. Abraham and Isaac continued up the mountain, and when they reached the top of that peak, Abraham came to the pinnacle of his life. Abraham was born for this moment. God created Abraham, yes, to be the father, in a sense, of the line that would lead to Jesus Christ, but God created Abraham to prophesy about the crucifixion of Christ in the most powerful way in the history of the world. And now we had come to that moment. So as he reached the peak, without knowing it, he had also reached the pinnacle of his life. And all of his sufferings had prepared him for this exact moment in time. When he was there, he did three things. He built an altar, carefully arranged it. Number two, he carefully again ordered and arranged the wood on top of the altar. Last night, Kimmy and I were talking about all this, and I just see in the order that Abraham put everything in order, I see like the Father is in total control of all the pieces that lead to the sacrifice of His Son. Even as later, God was totally controlling everything that led to the sacrifice of Jesus. You read in Acts that everything that happened, His betrayal, His death, His resurrection, all of that happened according to the definite foreknowledge and plan of God. God was in absolute control of the sacrifice of His Son. And here, Abraham is in absolute control of all the pieces of the sacrifice of His Son. And having built the altar and laid the wood upon it, somehow or other, this old man bound this young man hand and foot and laid him upon the altar. And with crocodile tears in his eyes, I'm sure, he stretched out his hand and grabbed that knife, willing to kill his only son, the one whom he loved. And praise be to God, right at the moment when he put his hand on the knife, the angel of God called out from heaven, not from earth, but from heaven, a loud voice, Abraham, Abraham! Eagerly, I'm sure Abraham said, here am I. And the angel spoke these words. Do not lay your hand on the boy, nor do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham had passed the test, beloved. And I can't imagine in that moment the sense of relief that filled his heart, much less Isaac's heart. The Bible says in Hebrews 11.19 that at this moment it was as if Abraham had, seen, had, had received his son back from the dead. And the Bible doesn't share the details, but I just imagine that at that moment, Abraham dropped the knife and grabbed his son on the altar and began to weep and say, Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for sparing my son. As he lifted up his eyes, miracle of miracles, what does he see? Not only does he see a ram, but he sees a ram that's caught in the bushes, hopelessly caught in the bushes, so that that ram would be easy to catch. Somehow, he lets Isaac go. They catch the ram. They sacrifice this ram in place of Isaac. And I'm sure they hug, laugh, cried, and worshipped God together. Beloved, when the time was right, when the time was full, the Lord did indeed provide for Himself a burnt offering. But that ram was not the ultimate ram that Abraham had prophesied about. As I've already said multiple times, the ultimate ram... God would later provide. The ultimate Lamb of God 
was Jesus Christ who would one day take away the sins of the world. And so it's no small thing to me, I thought about this in great depth this week, more than I ever have, that Abraham named that mountain the Lord provides. That was the name of the place. And you'll see there in Genesis that it says that it came to be known by that name. So if you lived in that area and you saw that mountain, you and everybody else would look and point and say, the Lord provides. The Lord provides. And you know where this language is coming from. The Lord will provide a lamb for the burnt offering for Himself. The Lord provides. The Lord provides. For 2,000 years, the tradition is handed down from one generation to another. The Lord provides. The Lord provides. And the people, Lord, beloved, when they named the mountain that, had no idea what they were saying. They had no idea that every time they named the name of the mountain, they too were prophesying about the day that the Lamb of God would come and take away the sins of the world. This is one reason why I would just find it so powerful to think that this whole scene happened in Jerusalem and perhaps on Golgotha, right where Christ Himself would be sacrificed. And for thousands of years, the people look at that place and call it, the Lord provides, the Lord provides, the Lord provides. And when the time was full, praise be to God, He did provide. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has given Him a gift that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. At this time, the angel of the Lord spoke to Abraham again and said these words, beginning in verse 16. He reiterates the promise to him in very powerful ways. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring again in the singular as the stars of the heaven and the sand that's on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. From beginning to end, beloved, God is using this story to prophesy to the world about Jesus Christ. Abraham never knew any of that, so he rested himself in God, he took his son, got his servants, they went back to Beersheba, he staked his claim, and he lived there a good long time. Uh, Isaac had been born there, he had been raised there. The point is now they settled and decided to, to, to live there. And we'll see next week, they, they did live there a good long time. Chapter 22 ends with a brief genealogy. Most of us find genealogies boring. And you might wonder, what's this one doing at the end of this story? Very odd way to end a story like this, but actually it's a very powerful way to end a story like this. Look at verse 23 with me. And notice the little parenthetical comment that's there. Bethuel, Abraham's nephew, fathered Rebekah. Now who was Rebekah? Rebekah came to be Isaac's wife, right? So I take this to mean, while Abraham was obeying, God was preparing circumstances to fulfill His promises to Abraham. In other words, while this whole scene with Isaac was happening, God was preparing a wife for Isaac. God knew the end from the beginning. God knew the end of the story. He knew where all this was going. And while He's calling Abraham to do this, He's already preparing the way so that the promise would be fulfilled. God was in total control of this whole circumstance. 
And to me, that's the meaning of that brief genealogy at the end of the chapter. God is in control. And from the beginning, He had already designed to fulfill His promises. None of that was in question with or without Abraham's obedience. Well, that's probably not true. Abraham needed to obey at this time. But as I said earlier, God knew that he would obey. It's not as though God wondered about the state of Abraham's heart. He knew what he would do. I want to close this morning with two brief comments about this story. And then we'll be done. First of all, I want to speak a word especially to you, to you mothers. It occurred to me last night as I was praying and preparing myself that for some of you uh, as mothers, you might be thinking more of Isaac than, than us. You might be thinking about the horror of what it must have been like for a child to, to be put through something like this. And I simply want to say to you that God had Isaac in mind too and God took care of Isaac's needs. I'm convinced that Isaac heard the voice of the angel speaking from the mountain. And he visibly heard God Almighty talking to his father and then his father and he, which I, who I'm sure had a good relationship, a really good one. I'm sure they talked about it all the way home for three days. I'm sure God took care of Isaac and you might think that it's a horrible thing for God to put Isaac through this, but I don't think it is. God is a compassionate God. He's the Creator. He knows Isaac better than we know him and He took care of Isaac's needs. And if you step back from the emotion of that and just look at Isaac's life in the scope of history and in light of Christ and see that Isaac had the privilege of playing the part of Jesus Christ in a passion play that occurred 2,000 years before the crucifixion of Christ, you will see that he had an unbelievable privilege as a human being on this earth. In a way, beloved, Isaac occupies a role in humanity that is extremely rare. The top point zero 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 point one people that have ever lived get to play a role like Isaac played. He got to foreshadow Christ to the world for now the last 4,000 years. And so yes, there may have been some difficulty in going through that, but believe me, God had him in mind and God took good care of him. He's a good God. He's a gracious God. We'll see next week. Isaac's life turned out pretty well. Secondly, the reason I began this sermon the way that I did by going back to Genesis 1 and sort of giving us a swath of the history of salvation throughout the Bible is because I wanted us to see anew that the plan of God for the salvation of the world was in His heart and mind before the foundation of the world. It's not as though God tried the flood and said, well, that isn't going to work. I've got to try something else. And now I try the law. Well, that didn't work. I've got to try something else. Well, how, how about let's try this Jesus dying on a cross thing. It's not like that, beloved. From the very beginning, God had this in His mind. And before He ever gave the law to Moses, He prefigured through Abraham what He would do in Christ. In my mind, Genesis 22 is the most powerful prophecy in the Bible of the coming of Jesus Christ and in all of history. It is an unbelievable, in a sense, reenactment of it before it ever happened. 2,000 years before it ever happened. It shows us that in the wisdom of God, God had the gospel in mind long, 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 long ago. And so, with that in mind, as we meditate on this story, I think that one shock ends up giving way to another kind of shock. I told you that I, I've been thinking about this story fairly regularly for the last 20, almost 25 years. I, I'll never forget. I've, I read the Bible through from cover to cover in four months when I came to Christ. I was so eager to know Him, I just couldn't stop reading. Well, Genesis 22 is not very far in. And as a new believer, this story kind of shocked me. And then later I studied it in more depth. I've been thinking about it a lot. The original shock of the story is how can God command anybody to do that, right? 
How can anybody imagine God saying, sacrifice your child? Later, God strictly forbids this kind of thing. So how could he do it? It's a shock. It's like a horror. If you're feeling that sense of horror in your soul, you're right in the right emotional spot. Because I think the Bible wants you to feel that sense of shock. Who would kill their beloved son? The more you meditate on the story, you see that shock giving way to another shock. Namely, how in the world could God be so merciful as to sacrifice His own beloved Son? When you see that the whole point of this story is to help us feel and understand what God has done in Christ, then you see the, 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 the deeper shock of the story. Namely, that God is that merciful. That God, who so highly values His one and only begotten Son, would sacrifice that son for the sake of the sins of us all. And there's one major difference, by the way, between this story and what happened with Christ, and that is this. Christ was a willing participant in His sacrifice. Jesus emptied Himself. You remember the Lord said, nobody takes my life. I lay it down. I lay it down. Jesus did it on purpose. He did it willingly. He did it sacrificially. He did it, Hebrews tells us, joyfully. He did it worshipfully. He laid his life down. And beloved, I think that the the parental emotions of this story are designed to help us see and feel the depth of what God has done in Christ. Please meditate on the story. Let the Lord give you insight into that. God never told Abraham the fullness of what his suffering and what his sacrifice was about, not even this scene. But all along, God had a plan in mind. And when the time was full... God brought that plan to fruition. Now, we know now that that plan was prefiguring another plan. And when the time was full again, God brought that plan to fruition and He sent Jesus Christ onto this earth to live a righteous life and die a real death and to be raised again from the dead for real. This time He really died and He really raised back from the dead. And now He lives forever that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so I bid you, believe in Jesus Christ today. Believe in Him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the burnt offering that God provided for Himself. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your wisdom and I thank You for Your mercy. I thank You for Your work in the life of Abraham. I thank You for shouting to the Jews and then to the whole world what you were going to do in Jesus Christ through this story. And I thank you for Abraham's and Isaac's willingness to go through it. Father, I pray that as believers on this other side of the cross, 2,000 years, almost a perfect symmetry, how far we are on the other side of the cross. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we meditate upon these things. And I pray that you would reveal to us the holiness of this moment and the massiveness of your mercy that's revealed in this moment. Lord, Your mercy is literally beyond description. It's beyond belief. And I pray that as we meditate, that it would literally overwhelm our sins, Father. Lord, there are real sins in our lives. There are real sins in our hearts. And I pray that by the massive mercy of God, You would overcome them all for the glory of Your name and the joy of our souls. Would You please, Lord, make laughter for us in this way. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.